the title of my talk is Combating the Critics and Advancing the Theory. Uh, I actually have uh, several hard copies of it that I'm going to leave up here uh, for people to pick up, just a handful of copies, but if you're interested, pick them up after the session. I'll also have it posted to the Mises site uh, probably by the end of the day. Uh, sure enough, uh, I first read America's Great Depression uh, when it was only six years old uh, and still in its first edition. We learned that from Bill Butos uh, already. Uh, and uh, he pointed out that it was four years earlier that he bought the book. We don't know when he read it. <laughs> but I've had numerous occasions to refer to uh, Murray's book uh, and read it in its entirety again in 2000 in preparations to review the fifth edition of the book. And still again, I read much of it uh, in preparation for this session. Now, we all know that the, the primary contribution that Rothbard made was his insightful application of the Austrian theory uh, to America's Great Depression. But several of us, in, including myself, have chosen to focus on the theory chapters, and, and I'm focusing specifically on uh, chapter one, which he calls a positive theory, uh, and you could describe that theory as simply drawing from Mises and responding to critics. And uh, as I've read this book different times, it's occurred to me of the strategic value of responding to critics, uh, especially when it's Rothbard doing the responding. Uh, he has a knack for it and is just in his element uh, when it comes to setting a critic straight. Uh, he approaches it with gleefully, let's say, sort of as a Rothbardian adjective. Uh, responding to critics has a lot of payoffs. It, uh, it gives you a better understanding of the theory that you're defending. Uh, it helps you state it uh, more clearly. causes you to see new directions in which the theory can be uh, developed. Well, sure, it does all those things, but who could object? Who could deny that responding to critics is a worthwhile uh, undertaking? And you don't have to look any further than one of our own Austrians, uh, Louis Spadaro, uh, who comes into play here as uh, the chair of a conference in, 17, in, not, in 1976, uh, just two years after the South Royalton uh, Conference, and uh, he was chair of that session. It was a wonderful session. It was held at Windsor Castle, which is uh, recommended as a place to uh, have a conference. Uh, and uh, Rothbard was there, as was uh, Hayek and uh, Kirzner and Lachman. And then quite a few upstart Austrians, youngsters, including myself. And I like to be able to refer to myself as a youngster every once in a while. And there I was in, uh, in 1976 uh, at Windsor Castle, uh, soaking up some Austrian theory. Well, uh, Spadaro, chair of the session, he was, uh, did his PhD under Mises, and undeniably an Austrian, but he spent about a quarter of his paper uh, lamenting uh, people responding to critics. I'm going to cut this short, and, and I'm going to read one of his 
uh, claims. Find it. He actually had a number of of, uh, suggestions on how we might uh, advance the theory, but when it came to to uh, responding, let me just let me just uh, paraphrase that he says it's a shame that we spend so much time responding uh, to critics, and we should use the time more productively by developing our own theory. And so what we see is, is that he saw those as just strictly alternative ways of using your time. It's not, of course. It has a payoff uh, in, in developing uh, the theory as well. Now, what I've chosen to do today uh, is not to rehash some of the responses to critics that uh, Rothbard portrayed. In fact, we've had some of that from Bill Butos and from John Cochran. Uh, but I want to respond in a Rothbardian style uh, to uh, critics that we've dealt with since uh, 1963. Uh, And I have in mind here uh, something called Cambridge Capital Theory, uh, which calls into question the whole root uh, of the Austrian theory. It's capital theory, and therefore it's a business cycle theory. Uh, It's a kind of criticism that just... uh, lives a number of lives. It keeps coming back uh, no matter what the criticism. It hadn't caught the wind uh, in 1963, and so Rothbard would not have been inclined to deal with it, although it had its roots uh, back in the 1920s. Um, Now... I can tell just by looking at this audience that you're not already primed in Cambridge capital theory. So so I'm gonna have to tell you a little bit about what it is. Um, And it strikes at the roots of the Austrian idea of roundabout production, of the production time uh, in economics. And so I might start with just mentioning those uh, contributions by a number of Austrians. Uh, Menger talked about orders of goods. Bombeverk talked about maturity classes. Hayek talked about a structure of production and drew a triangle. So all of these were just efforts to put uh, to put time uh, into our uh, our theorizing, put time into the notion of roundaboutness. Bombeverk, unfortunately, attempted to quantify the roundaboutness. And it turns out that just won't work. Uh, there's, no, there's no metric by which you can measure roundaboutness. One of the reasons is that capital has no natural unit of its own. Uh, unlike labor, which we talk about in terms of worker hours or land, acre years, each of those things, those are heterogeneous labor and land, but at least we have a a unit that we can measure it in. With capital, there is no such unit, and that makes it impossible to uh, quantify. Now, ironically enough, Cambridge capital theorists create a unit uh, in order to criticize uh, Bombeverk and the Austrians. Uh, And this is true, actually, of neoclassical theory, too. 
but I, I became attuned to this early on, where uh, the kinds of capital measure that people had in mind were what I call universal non-units. Uh, they write about hunks of capital, or chunks of it, or doses, which are red flags to say that there's no, there's no more appropriate unit than that. They're universal non-units. Sometimes they just use the term unit of capital, uh, not recognizing that unit is not a unit. <laughs> and only by doing that uh, can they make their case about uh, the, the fallacy of uh, the so-called so fallacy in uh, Bombeverkian capital theory. Now, the theory itself comes in the form of a reswitching model, capital reswitching. See if I can get through this in three minutes or whatever we've got here. Uh, they imagine that the whole economy is characterized by a sequence of input. They say, call it capital, but in these examples, capital takes the form of dated labor. Well, once again, they've gone to a unit, namely labor, to measure capital. Uh, Ludwig Lachmann referred to this kind of theorizing as capital theory without capital. Uh, and so just on that basis, we could uh, uh, dismiss the criticism. Uh, so they imagine that uh, we have these two different techniques, each of which could describe the entire economy. And they, and they amount to dated labor being applied at different sequences to yield an output. And then they show using present value calculations, I don't know how you do present value of dated labor. You have to measure it in wage units like Keynes would, okay? But they demonstrate that uh, if an economy is using technique A, they call it, that has one particular sequence, and could use technique B, which is another particular sequence, they might find that over a period of time when interest rates are descending, and they're descending sort of waif-like, in other words, it's exogenous, and they're floating down, say, from 9% down to 1%, that it becomes profitable to switch from technique A to technique B at 8%. And then it becomes profitable to switch back. This is the re-switching when the interest rate descends below, say, 2%. All right? Now, they don't know which switch point corresponds to the Bombeverkian insight about roundaboutness. But whichever one it is, then the other one is in violation of that relationship. And therefore, so much for Austrian capital theory, so much for the business cycle theory. And we're all through with it. Okay, I'm not quite through with it yet, but I see I got one minute. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> now, it turns out that they're theorizing, as they admit, and I, I've emphasized this in my articles, and Leland Yeager has emphasized it in some of his, that what they're really talking about, especially to justify this waif-like uh, descent of the interest rate, they're really not talking about a process through time. They're talking about maybe three separate islands where technique A is used here and technique B there and technique C over there. And, of course, if that's what they're talking about, then it has nothing whatever to do with the Austrian theory because the Austrian theory is about 
changing the structure over time in a given uh, economy. Uh, however, uh, ever since Samuelson wrote his summing up article claiming that uh, re-switching gives a headache to the Austrians, then economists of all persuasions have been beating the Austrians over the head with technique A and technique B. And it's time to stop, okay? <laughs> because the theory doesn't work. Uh, it is uh, static theory. Uh, it's based on an exogenous interest rate. It uses a phony measure of capital and then inadmissibly uh, takes present values of that uh, phony measure. So it needs to be rejected uh, wholesale, as I'm sure Rothbard uh, would agree. I'll make one more point, and that is that even if, even if it could be restructured so as to cause things to happen over time and cause the economy to, sh to shift from technique A into technique B, uh, and then back to A, uh, it would be no more damaging to Austrian capital theory and Austrian business cycle theory is than the Giffen good, if you know what that is, is to the law of demand. It's a quirky exception to the law of demand that uh, has, has no force behind it at all, either empirically uh, or otherwise. No one has ever pointed to an instance of reswitching that's going on out there. And so I think we can uh, dismiss it once and for all, Rothbardian style. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.